welcome to FabGab. This is the podcast for the International Journal of Feminist Approaches to Bioethics, brought to you by Fab Network. My name is Catherine McKay, and today I'm joined by Maya Goldenberg from University of Guelph to discuss the book panel based on Professor Goldenberg's book, Vaccine Hesitancy, Public Trust, Expertise, and the War on Science. Hi, Maya. Hi. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, So the book panel was published in sort of four parts in a recent journal issue. I wonder if to kind of kick us off, you might give us a kind of overview of what of what your book is actually about. Sure thing. Um, so this book was, uh, when I was writing it, there wasn't any philosophical work on vaccine hesitancy. So vaccine hesitancy is um, the attitude of ambivalence or uncertainty around uh, vaccination. And there was there's a lot of uh, psychology research, a lot of various other social science research and public health research into this topic. But uh, as of yet, there hadn't been a philosophical account. So I wanted to work on that. And uh, in the book, I uh, reframed vaccine hesitancy uh, away from the common thinking about the issue that it is a problem of ignorance or irrationality or that people have some kind of anti-science sentiment that drives vaccine hesitancy. I did acknowledge that it often looks like that when people ignore medical advice or they repeat things that they've read on the internet, but there's lots of evidence that science illiteracy is not the cause. Uh, some of the evidence is that plenty of hes- there is plenty of hesitancy among educated people And it's also well documented that um, educational campaigns where, where, um, let's say, vaccine facts are separated from vaccine myths, they don't do much to change vaccine attitudes. And you would think if there was an educational or knowledge deficit, that's exactly what would happen. People would say, oh, well, now that I know. So, I mean, that that was interesting to me when when I started reading into this, because the fact that these campaigns don't work very well, this should tell us that there is some uh, something wrong with the initial assessment. But in instead, I found that this uh, this this knowledge deficit model is surprisingly resilient. In, in fact, it is usually the audience, namely the vaccine hesitant public, that are blamed for health communications failing to have a serious impact. So I wanted to think about what else could it be if not some kind of uh, science problem or science illiteracy problem. And I drew from my background in social epistemology, feminist philosophy, and philosophy of medicine and science to propose an alternative framing of what I called the war on science. And I said that what we had here was actually a crisis of trust. And I paid attention to the reasons that people give for not trusting authoritative advice. And the kinds of things that came out were very informed by my feminist philosophy background. Uh, Things like um, uh, uh, past and present harms associated with industry funding of biomedical research, um, medical racism and injustice actually looms large as rational reasons for mistrusting medical advice. Not to say that vaccine refuses are right, but I will say that the work of fostering and maintaining public trust has not been sufficiently attended to by healthcare institutions. So vaccine hesitancy as a whole, it's a, it's a symptom of this neglect. Yeah. And so your 
your book, you started writing your book, I think you say in your commentary in 2015, the focus was clearly not on COVID-19. That's right. It was on the big topic at the time that elicited a lot of energy and concern by public health people, by politicians, was childhood vaccinations. We're, we're coming back to that now after a few years hiatus. But it was this sort of puzzling uh, problem where, at least in industrialized nations, we had a we had a strong and well communicated science consensus on vaccines. There was consistent messaging and and uh, relatively good access, yet vaccine hesitancy persisted. And a lot of people were spending energy trying to figure out uh, why that was. And I joined in that. I, when I started this research, I, I wanted to figure out what evidence was going to convince them. And it turned out, uh, I, I figured out pretty quickly that I, it was actually the wrong question to ask. It, first of all, assumed that it must be some missing data point or evidence that's missing. I now think, I no longer think that is true. And it also created this polarizing uh, position where there's us who accept vaccines and them who don't. Mm -hmm. And a little bit of looking into some of the psychology research and grounding that in uh, epistemology of trust made me realize that we're not actually that different. Instead, uh, people are very motivated to uh, respond to healthcare advice from people that they trust. And if you live in a, in a social circle where most people don't vaccinate, chances are you are going to reasonably take the steps to not vaccinating your children. While if you live in a world where vaccines are the norm, vaccinating is the norm, then you, chances are, in most cases, you will follow along in that way. Yeah, I would love to come back to that. Um, but first, <laughs> I guess let's talk about the book panel a little bit. Um, okay. So... The the two uh, people that were writing kind of very, very friendly sort of critiques to you were Miriam Solomon and Immaculata de Melo Martin. And um, I guess I wanted to ask, first of all, what was the sort of motivation behind putting the panel together? What was the motivation for this discussion? We were invited to do this book panel at uh, the central APA meeting. And we were happy to do it. For me, it was uh, also my first in-person conference in, in years. <laughs> but when I received their, their commentaries, yes, they were very, um, very approving of the general findings of the book. But they were reflecting on whether the analysis still held during this during this time, which was, you know, right, still uh, COVID-19 was still going strong. Uh, a lot of uh, public health measures were still in place, like masking and uh, testing before you went uh, went on a plane. And um, they both, in different ways, were asking that question, does it still hold now? And I think uh, their frustration was loomed large. Both of them um, are uh, are living in America, where they both had this feeling that uh, vaccination had become so polarized. In fact, every health recommendation around COVID had become so polarized that it was hard to see how some kind of analysis around building trust was going to do much. In the end, um, uh, Miriam Solomon was 
more weary of that. She said, I just don't know if it's enough. It seems like we're steeped in misinformation and polarization. And uh, it it just may not do the work as much as I like how it sounds. It may not do the work. Um, uh, Inma de Mello Martin was was more uh, was seemed to be more accepting of it that there was that there was still uh, a good good grounding for thinking that that all was not lost and that we could still work with this in these highly intensely polarized um, situations. Yeah, yeah. So. I wanted to ask you about some of their um, some of the critiques, I guess, that uh, were lobbed at you. Um, as you just said, I think um, Miriam Solomon she sort of says in her commentary, like I completely agree with this. However, um, while I think that um, Maya's approach is necessary, I'm not sure that it's sufficient. So yes, we need to engage with these people in a more respectful way and. Yes, building trust is absolutely important, but this sounds like a very slow, a kind of one-on-one process, something that takes a long time to develop. And so it's not sufficient. It's not enough for what we need now, or maybe what we would need in a future kind of pandemic scenario. How did you respond to that? My response was something like, it, like uh, I can see that trust takes a while to build, but it's also very easy to lose. I, I, uh, all the theorists on trust say something like that, uh, slow to build, quick to lose. And uh, I pointed out the many steps along the way where different decisions around policy and communications during COVID could have resulted in a much different scenario. So we can actually go back and look at some of the policy decisions that were made and communications that were made as a playbook in how not to do it. It's it's funny how COVID will be remembered as, you know, that this time when governments were very um, likely to say we're following the science and they were convening expert panels. I mean, despite all the, uh, you sometimes read these statements that expertise is dead, but instead we had expert opinions everywhere uh, during COVID. And they read expertise very narrowly. If there had been more discussion, not just with infectious disease experts, but communication specialists, uh, people coming from critical social sciences and humanities about how you engage with uh, with a diversity of people, things could have gone along a lot better. Instead, there was things like um, excess bluster in saying <laughs> these vaccines are going to end uh, this pandemic, there was no evidence for that. There was a feeling that there was um, too much allowance for the manufacturers of these vaccines to set the price, establish their own um, networks of of uh, um, di- distribution, and of course, they didn't have a global plan either. So, any worry that was already tied to vaccine hesitancy, where um, uh, the pharmaceutical and biotechnology companies have too much power over it. That was only amplified. And had they consulted, let's say, experts in vaccine hesitancy, there could have been steps along the way to mitigate that kind of concern because it could have been anticipated. And in, instead, it was treated like we'd never we'd never heard of vaccine hesitancy before. In fact, I can point to early communications around uh, vaccination and the especially the rollout, which, you know, in high income countries came a year into the pandemic, it's like they'd never heard of vaccine hesitancy before. Mm -hmm. And they expected everyone to be lining up for this 
vaccine. Actually, I can think back. I did a lot of media during uh, during the height of the pandemic, where I remember the first one I had was just maybe a month into the uh, maybe it was a month into the pandemic. I I got I was interviewed by a Canadian journalist who said, uh, "So once these vaccines are available, everyone's going to want it, right?" And I said, (laughs) "Why would you think that?" And to him, it was so obvious because. At this point, we were all we were literally locked down, and uh, the need was so great. But he he couldn't even imagine that there would be people that were resistant to it. And I said, "Histor." Of course, I couldn't see the future, but I said, "Based on history, we have no reason to think that everyone is going to want this vaccine." As appealing as it sounds to you, it will not sound appealing to everyone. And sure enough, it was not appealing to everyone. And this kind of, I mean, this connects into um, Inma de Mello Martin's. Uh, commentary on your piece as well, because she kind of thought, I think one of the uh, takeaways from her commentary is um, this is fundamentally about values at some level. And you agree with this. You say this in your book. But um, her her view is that, well, maybe there are just some that um, are perhaps more problematic than others. Like maybe there are just some some values that we need to not take too seriously. Um, maybe there are some people who put trust where trust is not deserved, like in um, people who make crazy claims about totally untested fake treatments. You know, I don't even want to say treatments. Um, you know, claims about things that will help with something like COVID-19 that have no basis in evidence whatsoever, whereas at least this uh, vaccine is based in some evidence. So there seems to be like there's an epistemological gap here, but there's also a values-based gap here where I think part of your response would be, we can try to tackle the epistemological part, but we can't do that without the values. And it's sort of like, it becomes a question of whose values do we take seriously and how do we kind of employ them? And like, how do we negotiate that? Uh, that's right. And uh, so I agreed with her claim that it is certainly about values. I mean, all scientific issues are laden with values all the way through. And it's also the case that there are some values that we will not take seriously uh, the same way we don't take all opinions seriously. It's a, you have a right to have an opinion, but it doesn't mean that I need to take it very seriously. And that's, uh, that's, you know, kind of standard thinking about argumentation. Mm-hmm. So um, I got, I was, uh, uh, both authors were pushing me a little bit to say, why weren't you more, why didn't you come down on the on the wrong values and say there are some values that are unacceptable the same way that there are some ideas that have no merit either? And I, I had to allow that I had done more descriptive work on what vaccine hesitators were saying based on the uh, empirical research that's out there. There's actually a ton of it. And I thought that was valuable too. at least understand your audience when you're trying to communicate with them. It doesn't mean you're going to agree with them and it doesn't mean that you're just going to allow wrongful claims to persist. But the tendency in science communications is to try to fix the wrong claims. So that's, I, I mentioned vaccine facts versus vaccine myths. If I if I look at the kind of vaccine communications that happen, you know, 99 out of 100 times, it's always about myth busting um, countering misinformation. So the assumption is always that there's something wrong that needs to be righted. 
when sometimes listening to what people have to say is helpful too. It doesn't mean you need to allow what they say to to hold, uh, but trying to always be right is not a great way to get along with people. And I think deep down we know that. (laughs) It's not a great way if you've tried to have friendships and personal relationships with people. Being right is not going to make you well-liked. And there are some times where you do need to step back. You may not agree with what they say, but try to figure out where are they coming from? Where would they get these ideas? Why is it that something that sounds wild to you, you know, some conspiracy theory, doesn't sound wild to them. What situation put them there that the the um, the extreme view sounds more believable than something more uh, something uh, more uh, you know common? Like, well, the scientists say this, and it probably works, and they're right most of the time. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you about um, freedom. Um, so one of the interesting things that you point out in your response to um, Solomon and Demilla Martin is that it sounds like there was a really big shift in public discourse around vaccines between 2015 when you started writing the book and 2022 when you were writing this kind of commentary or even 2021 when you were kind of having the APA discussions mm-hmm. where um it seems like the topic of conversation really changed so that it became a matter of kind of parental choice and parental freedom about vaccines, whereas it that had not been the framing of the values before. I'm not sure at what point that changed, if it was COVID-19 or if it was actually something around COVID-19, but I just wanted to ask you more about that because I think that that's really it seems like that's still kind of where we are is this idea that um, it's kind of like science versus freedom or something like that now. So that's right. Yeah. Like what is, what do you think about this? Um, It it was actually a challenge about doing this philosophical work that I was working on a live debate that kept changing. And there's, I think we're trained as philosophers to do, to do that sort of step back a little bit, assess the situation and then cover it with some kind of overarching framework or broad principles or something like that. I was never able to do that because it kept changing so much. So when I started researching in 2015, um, there was certainly vaccine hesitancy. That was a concern for public health, uh, but it was not politically polarized in the same way. For one, politicians on left and right were generally in agreement with vaccination. So Republicans and Democrats were in favor of vaccination in the US, for example. That's certainly not the way it is now. And even in terms of vaccine refusal and vaccine hesitancy, you found arguments on the left and the right. So it was not like it is now, which is right now vaccine refusal is largely um, has largely been ado- adopted by the right. And interestingly, there used to be a lefty kind of um, um, lifestyle argument against vaccination, like kind of the like natural living, uh, West Coast Californian yoga moms had this kind of view about nature and not needing vaccines. That has been quieted. Uh, You don't hear it from the left anymore. I think they still exist. They're just quieter about it. So that it became more obvious in uh, during COVID 
when there was a, many uh, politicians that were sort of using the populist right populist rhetoric to and bringing vaccination in uh, vaccination refusal into that political fold, uh, but it was happening before. So there were some events uh, where politicians who previously would have said things like "I'm in favor of vaccination," the the discourse kind of shifted in favor of parental rights. And uh, there's been some analysis of, of the media and the discourses around uh, vaccine refusal. And it kind of came from the protesters. It seemed the, the story is that vaccine refusers were trying to get leverage with their politicians and they weren't getting very far when they were trying to convince the politicians that vaccines aren't safe, vaccines cause autism and something like that. So they shifted the language towards parental choice and say, shouldn't it be, this was against the vaccine mandates, which are you know quite common around pediatric vaccines, shouldn't it be a parent's choice whether to vaccinate or not? And it was hard for any Republican or right or right-leaning uh, politician to disagree with that. I'd say even on the left, it should be hard to disagree with that too, but somehow the, the left remained uh, in favor of mandatory vaccination. So the language shifted towards rights and with that, then they could kind of slip in the, the, the questionable science about this vaccines not being safe. And, and it, within a very short period, you started hearing politicians repeating this kind of questionable uh, scientific findings about vaccination causing uh, neurological damage and autism and things like that. And of course, it, it, it reached its peak uh, with uh, in the U.S. with then President Trump actually being outwardly uh, anti-vaccine and claiming that kids get autism from from childhood vaccines. Yeah, so interesting. And another thing that you kind of touch on in your in your response in your commentary is how the main kind of response to this from the left or from leftist politicians, left-leaning politicians, is to say, um, well, we're waiting on the science or we're listening to the science or we have to listen to the science or something like that. And so on the one hand, you have people saying, I, I actually would say that there's a kind of inflation of the value of personal choice going on on one side of the debate. On the other side, you have a kind of abdication or a refusal to acknowledge that um, there's no such thing as sort of just like neutrally listening to science in quotation right. marks. Um, right. as you the point the out, left like, pun of science here. Yeah, the left is adopting or has adopted during COVID a scientific language of we don't need to talk about values, it's science after all. And, you know, anyone who studies science studies listens to that and says, oh, no, don't do that again. That never works. It's not a way to bring people in. It is assuming a lot about science that just isn't true. Science does not direct our policies in any straightforward way. It hopefully informs it, but does not direct it. Uh, science is laden with values and the best science is uh, critical of those values, not just of, of the scientific evidence. And if you want to alienate people from public policy, you say, don't worry, folks, we're listening, we're following the science, because there are plenty of people who have had past and even present experience with, let's say, healthcare, or other, uh, or, or know that, you know, history of science and say, yeah, but science doesn't always work in the interest of, let's say, marginalized communities. So, you know, it's not irrational to be weary of 
claims that science is going to save us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so you've kind of commented that there was a big challenge to you in writing the book or even kind of like post post book um, with the fact that the debate has been shifting and moving so quickly. Were there other challenges that you faced either in the book kind of after after book? Uh, yeah, the live debate was 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 probably my biggest challenge, as I mentioned. And I should say I was finishing up the book in uh, March 2020, right as COVID was declared a pandemic. Yeah. And I had that moment where I said, oh, my God, do I need to add another chapter or rewrite <laughs> the whole book? And I took a few weeks to think about it and eventually realized that my chapter on COVID-19 and I was already anticipating there's going to be vaccines, there's going to be vaccine hesitancy. My prediction was that the concerns that I that I raise and the themes of public trust and uh, and uh, um, relationships of the of the public to experts was going to loom large. And I, I decided instead of trying to say something about that that hasn't happened yet, I said, let's just flag that as something that we're going to need to watch. So, you know, I, I think I mentioned COVID-19 in my uh, sort of preface to the readers and on the last page of the, of the <laughs> book, say, let's keep watching. Luckily, I kept it general. And I'd say the prediction was true that public trust became kind of the, you know, common language, public trust in science. Why don't the public trust science um, was was so common. Concerns about expertise were uh, big themes all through COVID. And I mean, I think the the groundwork was already there, but it, they ended up being major themes for thinking through COVID, uh, the COVID situation that we're still in. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that it's, I think that it's good in a way and also really interesting that the book is focused on childhood vaccination because childhood vaccination seems like it's, it was one of the very, very many ongoing issues that just fell off the table during the pandemic. And we just sort of forgot about it. And we forgot about a whole lot of stuff. And I think that's understandable. But at the same time, that was a kind of issue that pre-existed. So you were saying, you know, vaccine hesitancy was around before we had the COVID-19 vaccines. And actually, even if the pandemic is over, now we have to grapple with a kind of new world of vaccine hesitancy, because I think it's possible that COVID-19 has actually made it worse, maybe, for childhood vaccination. So it's already been documented in the medical literature. Oh, wow. okay. a, lot of, a lot of children missed their vaccinations. You know, the wellness visits didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And now physicians want to catch people up. And a lot of parents are saying, why would I do that? It, it might be just because, well, my kid's fine for now. So you've already got an older child. So you didn't just... So one thing that's known about how do you get people vaccinated is you normalize it. The best way to get people to vaccinate is is not to argue with them or to make them think too hard is just when that's the norm, people just follow what everyone else is. For a while, it wasn't the norm. In addition to that, there was all the, the politics around COVID vaccination. So now we're coming back to parents and say, hey, want to catch up your kids on vaccination? And many of them are saying no. Wow. So, okay. so that vac- that concern about vaccination is back. Um, it, it's funny to have a book that's two year uh, that's uh, you know just just over a year old and it already sort of works as a bit of a historical case. But historical cases, of course, are very illuminating. They can 
remind us that the situation we're in right now doesn't have to be that way. So that was one thing I said to the authors and, and at the APA panel was, was as wild as it seems now, we've had different scenarios and we will have different scenarios. Again, we just have to think about what are the conditions that create better scenarios, better relationships between the public and uh, healthcare institutions. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess my final question for you feels like it's a little bit of an unfair one because I'm kind of going to be asking you to like summarize your entire book in a sentence. But I am really curious to know, and I'm sure that the listeners are too, sort of how do we walk back this sort of terribly polarized situation we're in now? What is your sort of recommendation for healing this massive sort of divide between pro and anti-vaccine folks? Uh, I think we're going to first need a period of calm, and I just don't know when we're going to get it. Everything is so heightened now, uh, you know, just to, right now. One thing that happened during COVID was that uh, the the many government leaders got were impatient with the usual techniques of persuasion, trying to get people to vaccinate, and they brought in vaccine mandates very quickly. And because of that, all the debates were around freedom and, you know, whether uh, um, whether mandates uh, make it better or worse. And this is so different than how it was before. If you look at my book, I spent like three pages on vaccine mandates. That's it, because mandates were already the norm. And many of them worked very well. Where I live in Ontario, we've had childhood vaccine mandates, so school entry mandates for children to go to daycare and school since the early 1980s. And there's been high uptake and not a lot of fight against it. Mm -hmm. And we can look at why that was. I have suspicions why that was. One is it was introduced during a period of calm, not in the middle of a pandemic where everything had been uh, everything had been heightened. There had been some measles outbreaks in the early 1980s. It was actually introduced by a conservative government in Ontario, which people are always like, hmm, they're surprised when I say that. But it was seen as a way uh, to protect individual rights, so to protect children from getting uh, infected by other children in their classes. And because vaccination wasn't, you know, a tipping point for, you know, larger uh, social unrest and mistrust, it came in fairly, I don't know if it easily is the right word, but it, it didn't create all kinds of issues around it. Another thing that was probably crucial, at least in Ontario, was they allowed for exemptions. You could have religious exemptions, so your child could still go to school with that. And the idea was always, as long as the exemption rate stays low and most kids are vaccinated, it works out well. Something happened during COVID that there was very little tolerance for exemptions. In fact, I was surprised how uh, strict the exemptions were in Ontario, the same province where we allow exemptions for children. Suddenly there was very little tolerance for that. Hardly anyone got a COVID exemption, even people who had had past reactions and health conditions. There was, uh, I think, every, there was a, you know, human rights courts were looking through them and all of them were failing. And that is not a good public health strategy. It's kind of known that you have to have a little bit of a release valve. I've heard that described where the anger needs to be able to be um, released somehow. Otherwise, 
people get mad, they organize, and it gets bad. And we've seen some examples of that where uh, various states or other jurisdictions got very strict on exemptions because they felt that there was too many of them. And then the people get organized. People who otherwise would have mainly maybe grumbled about it and done other things, they um, got organized. And many of them were ready when COVID uh, first hit. They said, we know there'll be COVID vaccines and uh, our people will be ready when, when <laughs> that happens. So this is a kind of secondary effects that you need to be thinking about when you introduce this kind of legislation. So this is all to say that I'm I'm not making an argument against vaccine mandates. It's actually an argument that if you distill vaccination and all the feelings and attitudes around it to mandate or don't mandate, you actually miss a lot of the relevant values that are at play there. Instead, it becomes a, don't you agree that we should have freedom? Yeah. You don't? Well, you know, then we can't talk to each other. And that's something that we now need to deal with. So I'd so now that COVID mandates have uh, vaccine mandates have been pulled back, it might be a time that we can have sort of calmer thought uh, where where people feel less backed up against the wall about um, what kind of society we want to live in and where do vaccines fit into overall health strategies. It certainly can't be our only health strategy, which it did feel like that in, in some moments during COVID, that it was vaccinate or you're on your own. And that was not a great way to think about public health. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me. That's been so interesting, Maya. Thanks. It's been great to talk to you. And thank you for listening to this episode of FabGab. You can find Maya's book in all great bookstores. You can find the papers that we've discussed linked in this episode's notes, along with the transcript of our discussion. FabGab is hosted and produced by me, Catherine McKay. You can find our other episodes on Spotify, Radio, Public, Anchor, or wherever you get your podcasts of quality. Thanks again for listening. Bye.